13. Hartford, Admiral Farragut's flagship, and the next day set sail for our destined port. If a coral reef surrounded by a raging surf can be called a port, about the same time a party of French observers under Monsieur Janssen, of the Paris Academy of Sciences, left Panama in the Eclairer. It was an ocean race of 4,000 miles due west. The station Caroline Islands was supposed to be more desirable than Flint Island. Admiral Wilkes's expedition had lain off the latter several days without being able to land on account of the tremendous surf, so that it was eminently desirable to beat the Frenchmen, as the sailors put it. With this end in view our party had secured through a member of the National Academy in Washington the verbal promise of the proper official of the Navy Department that the Hartford's orders should read to burn coal as necessary. The last obstacle to success was thus removed. We were all prepared, and now the ship would take us speedily to our station. Imagine our feelings the next day after leaving Cayado, when the commanding officer of the Hartford opened his sealed orders. They read dated Washington, in February to arrive at Caroline Islands in April with full coal bankers. Officialism could go no further. Here was an expedition sent on a slow sailing ship directly through the regions of Combs for 4,000 miles. It was of no possible use to send the expedition at all unless it arrived in time. And here were our orders to arrive with full coal bankers. Fortunately we hadn't heard of good luck. The trade wind blew for us as it did for the ancient mariner and we sped along the parallel of 12 degrees south at the rate of 150 miles a day under sail, while the Eclairer was steaming for 30 days a little nearer the equator in a dead calm. We arrived off the island just in time, with not a day to spare. It was a narrow escape, and a warning to all of us never to sail again under sealed orders unless we knew what was under the seal. Here we were, then, lying off the island and scanning its sparse crown of coconut palms looking for a French flag among their wavy tufts. There was none in sight. We were the winners in the long race. Directly a whale boat was lowered, and rode around the white fringe of tremendous surf that broke ceaselessly against the vertical wall of coral rock. There was just one narrow place where the waves rolled into a sort of cleft and did not break. Here was the landing. Then, landing was an acrobatic feat, and you went on the crest of a wave, plumbing for the place where the blue seas did not break into a white. An instant after, you were in the quiet water inside of the surf. Jump out everybody and hold the boat. Then it was pick up the various instruments, and carry them for a quarter of a mile to high water mark and beyond, over the sharp points of the reef. In one night we were fairly settled, in another the Hartford had sailed away, leaving us in our fairy paradise, where the corals and the fish were of all the brilliant hues of the rainbow, and where the whiteness of the sand, the emerald of the lagoon, and the turquoise of the ocean made a picture of color and form never to be forgotten. But where are the Frenchmen? The next morning there is the Eclairer lying a mile or so out, and there is a boat with the Boson Maitre d'Equipage pulling towards the surf. I wade out to the brink. He hellos, where is the landing? Then, my eyesight, right here, I say. Yes, that's all very well for persons, but where do you land L's baggages? My eyesight, I say again, and he says, diable. But all the same he lands both persons and baggage in a neat, sailor-like way. In a couple of days our two parties of fifty persons had taken possession of this fairy isle. Observatories go up. Telescopes. Spectroscopes. Photographic cameras are pwned and adjusted. The eventful day arrives. Everything is successful. Then comes the Hartford and takes us away. And a few days later comes the Eclair. And the Frenchmen are gone. The little island is left there. 
abandoned to the five natives who attend the sickly plantation of cocoa palms, and live from year to year with no incident but the annual visit of the Blake Kanaka Forbrig, which brings their store of ship biscuit and molasses. Think of their stupendous experience. For years and years they have lived like that in the marvelous, continuous charm of the silent island. The Blake had come and gone away this year, and there will be no more disturbance and discord for a twelve month longer. Surely, surely, slumber is more sweet than toil. The shore than labor in the deep mid-ocean, wind, and wave, and oar. Then rest ye, brother mariners, we will not wander more. Not so, for here comes a great warship out of the east under oppressive canvas. What event is this? See, she clues of pearlite sails and fires an eleven-inch gun. One of those guns of Mobile Bay. Then swarms out the starboard watch. One hundred and sixty strong and a fleet of boats brings ashore these pale astronomers with those useless tubes that they point at the sky every night. But there are full things too, cooking stoves, and lumber, and bricks. What is all this? No sooner are these established than comes another ship and fires its gun, and another set of hardy sailormen pours out, and here is another party of madmen with tubes, yes, and with cooking stoves and lumber, too. Then comes the crowning, stupendous, and unspeakable event. The whole sun is hidden and the heavens are lighted up with pearly streamers. In the name of all the Polynesian gods, what is the meaning of all this? And then in a few days all these are gone. All the madmen, they have taken away the useless tubes, but they have left their houses standing. Their splendid, priceless, precious cookstoves are here. See, here is a frying pan. Here are empty tin cans, and a keg of nails. They must have forgotten all this, madmen as they are and the little island sinks back to its quiet and its calm. The lagoon lies placid like a mirror. The slow sea breaks eternally on the outer reef. The white clouds sail over day by day. The seabirds come back to their haunts. The fierce man of war birds. The gentle, soft and turn. But we, whose island home was thus invaded are we the same? Was this a dream? Will it happen again next year? Every year? What indeed was it that happened? Or in fact, did it happen at all? Is it not a dream? Indeed, if we left those peaceful Kanakas to their dream, we Americans have brought ours away with us. Who will forget it? Which of us does not wish to be in that peaceful fairyland once more? That is the personal longing. But we have all come back, each one with his notebooks full, and in a few weeks the stimulus of accustomed habit has taken possession of us again. Right and wrong are again determined by municipal sanctions. We have become full citizens once more. Perhaps it is just as well. We should have been poor poets, and we do not forget. So ends the astronomer's voyage to fairyland. Halos P.A.R.H.E.L.I.A. The Spectre of the B.R.O.C.K.N. Etc. From the Atmosphere. By Camila Thalian and Arilan. Treatises on meteorology had not, up to the present day, classified with sufficient regularity the divers optical phenomena of the air. Some of these phenomena have, however, been seen but rarely and have not been sufficiently studied to admit of their classification. We have examined the common phenomenon of the rainbow and we have seen that it is due to the refraction and reflection of light on drops of water, and that it is seen upon the opposite side of the sky to the sun in daytime, or the moon at night. We are now about to consider an order of phenomena which are of rarer occurrence, but which have this property in common with the rainbow, viz. that they take place also upon the side of the sky opposite to the sun. These different optical effects are classed together under the name of Antelia from Greek, opposite to, and Greek, the sun, 
the optical phenomena which occur on the same side as, or around the Sunday such as halos, parhelia, etc. will be dealt with later on, before coming to the antelia, properly so called, or to the colored rings which appear around a shadow. It is as well first to note the effects produced on the clouds and mists that are facing the sun when it rises or sets, upon high mountains. The shadow of the mountain is often seen thrown either upon the surface of the lower mists or upon the neighboring mountains, and projected opposite to the sun almost horizontally. I once saw the shadow of the rigye very distinctly traced upon Mount Pilate, which is situated to the west of the rigye, on the other side of the lake of Lucerne. This phenomenon occurs a few minutes after sunrise, and the triangular form of rigye is delineated in a shape very easy to recognize. The shadow of Mont Blanc is discerned more easily at sunset. Millimeters Brevise and Martins, in one of their scientific ascents, noticed it under specially favorable circumstances, the shadow being thrown upon the snow-covered mountains, and gradually rising in the atmosphere until it reached a height of one degree still remaining quite visible. The air above the cone of the shadow was tinted with that rosy purple which is seen, in a fine sunset, coloring the lofty peaks. Imagine, says Brevise the other mountains also projecting, at the same moment, their shadows into the atmosphere, the lower parts dark and slightly greenish, and above each of these shadows the rosy surface, with the deeper rows of the belt which separates it from them, add to this the regular contour of the cones of the shadow, principally at the upper edge, and lastly, the laws of perspective causing all these lines to converge the one to the other toward the very summit of the shadow of Mont Blanc, that is to say, to the point of the sky where the shadows of our own selves were, and even then one will have but a faint idea of the richness of the meteorological phenomenon displayed before our eyes for a few instants. It seemed as though an invisible being was seated upon a throne surrounded by fire, and that angels with glittering wings were kneeling before him in adoration. Among the natural phenomena which now attract our attention, but fail to excite our surprise, there are some which possess the characteristics of a supernatural intervention. The names which they have received still bear witness to the terror which they once inspired, and even today, when science has stripped them of their marvelous origin, and explained the causes of their production, these phenomena have retained a part of their primitive importance, and are welcomed by the savant with as much interest as when they were attributed to divine agency, out of a large and very diverse number. I will first select the specter of the Brocken. The Brocken is the highest mountain in the picturesque Hearts chain, running through Hanover being 330 feet above the level of the sea. One of the best descriptions of this phenomenon is given by the traveler Hain, who witnessed it on the 23rd of May, 1797. After having ascended no less than 30 miles to the summit, he had the good fortune at last to contemplate the object of his curiosity. The sun rose at about 4 o'clock, the weather being fine, and the wind driving off to the west the transparent vapors which had not yet had time to be condensed into clouds. About a quarter past four, Haim saw in this direction a human figure of enormous dimensions, a gust of wine nearly blowing off his head at that moment. He raised his hand to secure it, and the colossal figure imitated his action. Haim, noticing this, at once made a stooping movement, and this was also reproduced by the specter. He then called another person to him, and placing themselves in the very spot where the apparition was first seen, the pair kept their eyes fixed on the Aperman showy but saw nothing. After a short interval, however, two colossal figures appeared, which repeated the gestures made by them, and then disappeared. Some few years ago, in the summer of 1862, a French artist, 
Amstrabant, witnessed and carefully sketched this phenomenon, which is drawn in full page illustration, opposite page 272. He had slept at the Inn of the Brocken, and rising at two in the morning, he repaired to the plateau upon the summit in the company of a guide. They reached the highest point just as the first glimmer of the rising sun enabled them to distinguish clearly objects at a great distance. To use Amstraband's own words, my guide, who had for some time appeared to be walking in search of something, suddenly led me to an elevation whence I had the singular privilege of contemplating for a few instants the magnificent effect of mirage, which is termed the specter of the Brocken. The appearance is most striking, a thick mist, which seemed to emerge from the clouds like an immense curtain, suddenly rose to the west of the mountain, a rainbow was formed, then certain indistinct shapes were delineated, first, the large tower of the inn was reproduced upon a gigantic scale, after that we saw our two selves in a more vague and less exact shape, and these shadows were in each instance surrounded by the colors of the rainbow, which served as a frame to this fairy picture, some tourists who were staying at the inn had seen the sun rise from their windows, but no one had witnessed the magnificent spectacle which had taken place on the other side of the mountain. Sometimes these specters are surrounded by colored concentric arcs. Since the beginning of the present century, treatises on meteorology designate, under the name of the yellow circle, the pale external arch which surrounds the phenomenon, and the same circle has sometimes been called the white rainbow, but it is not formed at the same angular distance as the rainbow, and, although pale, it often envelops a series of interior colored arcs, although, being in company with six fellow travelers upon the Pambamarca at daybreak one morning, observed that the summit of the mountain was entirely covered with thick clouds, and that the sun down when it rose, dissipated them, leaving only in their stead light vapors, which it was almost impossible to distinguish. Suddenly, in the opposite direction to where the sun was rising, each of the travelers beheld, that about seventy feet from where he was standing, his own image reflected in the air as in a mirror. The image was in the center of three rainbows of different colors, and surrounded at a certain distance by a fourth bow with only one color. The inside color of each bow was carnation or red. The next shade was violet, the third yellow, the fourth straw color, the last green. All these bows were perpendicular to the horizon, they moved in the direction of, and followed, the image of the person they enveloped as with a glory. The most remarkable point was that, Although the seven spectators were standing in a group, each person only saw the phenomenon in regard to his own person, and was disposed to disbelieve that it was repeated in respect to his companions. The extent of the bows increased continually and in proportion to the height of the sun, at the same time their colors faded away. The specter became paler and more indistinct, and finally the phenomenon disappeared altogether. At the first appearance the shape of the bows was oval, but toward the end they became quite circular. The same apparition was observed in the polar regions by Scoresby, and described by him. He states that the phenomenon appears whenever there is mist and at the same time shining sun, in the polar seas, whenever a rather thick mist rises over the ocean. An observer, placed on the mast, sees one or several circles upon the mist. These circles are concentric, and their common center is in the straight line joining the eye of the observer to the sun day and extended from the sun toward the mist. The number of circles varies from one to five, they are particularly numerous and well colored when the sun is very brilliant and the mist thick and low. On July 23, 1821, Scoresby saw four concentric circles around his head. The colors of the first and of the second were very well defined, those of the third, only visible at intervals, were very faint. 
and the fourth only showed a slight greenish tint. The meteorologist Kuntz has often observed the same fact in the Alps. Whenever this shadow was projected upon a cloud, his head appeared surrounded by a luminous aureola. To what action of light is this phenomenon due? Bagor is of opinion that it must be attributed to the passage of light through icy particles. Such, also, is the opinion of de Saucer, Scorisby, and other meteorologists. In regard to the mountains, as we cannot assure ourselves directly of the fact by entering the clouds, we are reduced to conjecture. The aerostat traversing the clouds completely, and passing by the very point where the apparition is seen, affords one an opportunity of ascertaining the state of the cloud. This observation I have been able to make, and so to offer an explanation of the phenomenon, as the balloon sails on, borne forward by the wind, its shadow travels either on the ground or on the clouds, this shadow island as a rule, black, like all others, but it frequently happens that it appears alone on the surface of the ground, and thus appears luminous, examining this shadow by the aid of a telescope, I have noticed that it is often composed of a dark nucleus and a penumbra of the shape of an aureola. This aureola, frequently very large in proportion to the diameter of the central nucleus, eclipses it to the naked eye, so that the whole shadow appears like a nebulous circle projected in yellow upon the green ground of the woods and meadows. I had noticed, too, that this luminous shadow is generally all the more strongly marked in proportion to the greater humidity of the surface of the ground, seen upon the clouds. This shadow sometimes presents a curious aspect. I have often when the balloon emerged from the clouds into the clear sky, suddenly perceived, at twenty or thirty yards distance, a second balloon distinctly delineated, and apparently of a grayish color, against the white ground of the clouds, this phenomenon manifests itself at the moment when the sun ray appears, the smallest details of the car can be made out clearly, and our gestures are strikingly reproduced by the shadow, on April 15, 1868. At about half past three in the afternoon, we emerged from a stratum of clouds, when the shadow of the balloon was seen by us, surrounded by colored concentric circles, of which the car formed the center, it was very plainly visible upon a yellowish-white ground, a first circle of pale blue encompassed this ground and the car in a kind of ring, around this ring was a second of a deeper yellow, then a grayish-red zone, and lastly as the exterior circumference, a fourth circle, violet in hue and imperceptibly toning down into the gray tint of the clouds, the slightest details were clearly discernible net, robes, and instruments, every one of our gestures was instantaneously reproduced by the aerial specters, the Andelion remained upon the clouds sufficiently distinct, and for a sufficiently long time, to permit of my taking a sketch in my journal and studying the physical condition of the clouds upon which it was produced, I was able to determine directly the circumstances of its production, indeed, as this brilliant phenomenon occurred in the midst of the very clouds which I was traversing, it was easy for me to ascertain that these clouds were not formed of frozen particles. The thermometer marked two degrees above zero. The hygrometer marked a maximum of humidity experienced, namely, 77 at 3,770 feet, and the balloon was then at 4,600 feet, where the humidity was only 73. It is therefore certain that this is a phenomenon of the diffraction of light simply produced by the vesicles of the mist. The name of diffraction is given to all the modifications which the luminous rays undergo when they come in contact with the surface of bodies. Light, under these circumstances, is subject to a sort of deviation, at the same time becoming decomposed, 
whence result those curious appearances in the shadows of objects which were observed for the first time by Grimaldi and Newton. The most interesting phenomena of diffraction are those presented by gratings, as are technically denominated the systems of linear and very narrow openings situated parallel to one another and at very small intervals. A system of this kind may be realized by tracing with a diamond, for instance, on a pane of glass equidistant lines very close together, as the light would be able to pass in the interstices between the strokes, whereas it would be stopped in the points corresponding to those where the glass was not smooth. Their island in reality, an effect produced as if there were a series of openings very near to each other, a hundred strokes, about one twenty-fifth of an inch in length, may thus be drawn without difficulty. The light is then decomposed in spectra, each overlapping the other. It is a phenomenon of this kind which is seen when we look into the light with the eye half closed, the eyelashes in this case, acting as a network or grating. These networks may also be produced by reflection, and it is to this circumstance that are due the brilliant colors observed when a pencil of luminous rays is reflected on a metallic surface regularly striated. To the phenomena of gratings must be attributed, to the colors, often so brilliant, to be seen in mother of pearl. The substance is of a laminated structure, so much so, that in carving it the different folds are often cut in such a way as to form a regular network upon the surface. It island again, to a phenomenon of this sort that are due the rainbow hues seen in the feathers of certain birds, and sometimes in spiders' webs. The latter, although very fine, are not simple, for they are composed of a large number of pieces joined together by a viscous substance, and thus constitute a kind of network. If the sun is near the horizon, and the shadow of the observer falls upon the grass, upon a field of corn, or other surface covered with dew, there is visible an aureola, the light of which is especially bright about the head, but which diminishes from below the middle of the body. This light is due to the reflection of light by the moist stubble and the drops of dew. It is brighter about the head, because the blades that are near where the shadow of the head falls expose to it all that part of them which is lighted up whereas those farther off expose not only the part which is lighted up, but other parts which are not, and this diminishes the brightness in proportion as their distance from the head increases. The phenomenon is seen whenever there is simultaneously mist and sun. This fact is easily verified upon a mountain. As soon as the shadow of a mountaineer is projected upon a mist, his head gives rise to a shadow surrounded by a luminous aureola. The Illustrated London News of July 8, 1871 illustrates one of these apparitions, the fog bow, seen from the Matterhorn, observed by Ewanker in the celebrated region of the Alps. The observation was taken just after the catastrophe of July 14, 1865, and by a curious coincidence, two immense white aerial crosses projected into the interior of the external orc. These two crosses were no doubt formed by the intersection of circles, the remaining parts of which were invisible. The apparition was of a grand and solemn character further increased by the silence of the fathomless abyss into which the four ill-fate tourists had just been precipitated. Other optical appearances of an analogous kind are manifested under different conditions. Thus, for instance, if anyone, turning his back to the sun and looks into a water, he will perceive the shadow of his head, but always very much deformed. At the same time he will see starting from this very shadow what seem to be luminous bodies which dart their rays in all directions with inconceivable rapidity, and to a great distance. These luminous appearances these aureola rays have, in addition to the darting movement, a rapid rotary movement around the head, the radiant planet that hangs on the skirts of dusk and dawn, like a jewel in an Ethiop's ear, 
has been known and sung by poets in all ages. Its supremacy over the remainder of the starry host is recognized in the name given it by the Arabs, those nomad watchers of the skies. For while they term the moon, el Ashar, the brighter one, and the sun and moon together, el Asharan, the brighter pair, they call Venus, is Zara, the bright or shining one par excellence, in which sense the same word is used to describe a flower. This, flower of night, is supposed to be no other than the white rose into a which Adonis was changed by Venus in the fable which is the basis of all early Asiatic mythology. The morning and evening star is thus the celestial symbol of that union between earth and heaven in the vivifying processes of nature, typified in the love of the goddess for a mortal. The ancient Greeks, on the other hand, not unnaturally took the star, which they saw alternately emerging from the effulgence of the rising and setting Sunday in the east and in the west for two distinct bodies, and named it differently according to the time of its appearance. The evening star they called Hesperus, and from its place on the western horizon, fabled an earthly hero of that name, the son of Elis, who from the slopes of that mountain on the verge of the known world used to observe the stars until eventually carried off by a mighty wind, and so translated to the skies. These divine honors were earned by his piety, wisdom, and justice as a ruler of men and his name long shed a shimmering glory over those Hesperidean regions of the earth, where the real and in real touched hands in the mystical twilight of the unknown, but the morning star shone with a different significance as the herald of the day, the torchbearer who lights the way for radiant aurora on her triumphal progress through the skies, hence he was called Eosthrus, or Phosphorus, the bearer of the dawn, translated into a Latin as Lucifer, the light bearer, the son of Eos, or Aurora, and the Titan Astrius, he was of the same parentage as the other multitude of the starry host, to whom a similar origin was ascribed, and from whom in Greek mythology he was evidently believed to differ only in the superior order of his brightness. Homer, who mentions the planet in the following passage, but when the star of Lucifer appeared, the harbinger of light, whom following clothes, spreads o'er the sea the saffron robed morn, Lord Derby's Iliad recognizes no distinction between those celestial nomads, the planets, wandering stars, as the Arabs call them, which visibly change their position relatively to the other stars, and the latter, whose places on the sphere are apparently fixed and immutable, in this he and his compatriots were far behind the ancient Egyptians, who probably derived their knowledge from still earlier speculators in Asia, for they not only observed the movements of some at least of the planets, but believe that Mercury and Venus revolved as satellites round the sun and which in its turn circled round our lesser world. Pythagoras is said to have been the first to identify Hesperus with Phosphor, as the silver planet both of Eve and Morn, and by Plato the same fact is recognized. The other planets, all of which had, according to him, been originally named in Egypt and Syria, have each its descriptive title in his nomenclature. Thus the innermost, the star of Mercury, is called Stilbon the sparkler, Mars, Pyroides, the fiery one, while Jupiter, the planet of the slowest course but one, is designated as Phaeton, and Saturn, the tardiest of all, Phenon, these names were in later times abandoned in favor of those of the divinities to whom they were respectively dedicated, and alterably associated now with the days of the week, over which they have been selected to preside, the Copernican theory, which once and forever, brushed the cobwebs out of the sky, by clearing away the mists of pre-existing error, first completely explained the varying positions of the shepherd's star, irradiating the first or last watch of night, according to her alternate function as the follower or precursor of the sun, 
as she travels on a path nearer to him by more than 25 and a half million miles than that of the earth. She is seen by us on each side of him in turn after passing behind or in front of him. The points at which her orbit expands most widely to our eyes an effect of course entirely due to perspective. As her distance from the sun is not then actually increased are called her eastern and western elongations, that at which she passes by the sun on the hither side her inferior, and on the farther side her superior conjunction, at both conjunctions she is lost to our view, since she accompanies the sun so closely as to be lost in his beams, rising and setting at the same time, and traveling with him in his path through the heavens during the day, when that inferior conjunction, or between us and the Sunday she turns her dark hemisphere to us like the new moon, and would consequently be invisible in any case, but when in the opposite position, shows us her illuminated face, and is literally a day star, invisible only because effaced by the solar splendor, it is as she gradually separates from him, after leaving this latter position, circling over that half of her orbit which lies to the east of him, that she begins to come into view as an evening star, following him at a greater and greater distance, and consequently setting later, until she attains her greatest eastern elongation, divided from the sun about 45 degrees of his visible circuit through the heavens, and consequently remaining above the horizon for some four hours after him, from this point she again appears to draw nearer to him until she passes on his hither side in inferior conjunction, from which she emerges on the opposite side to the westward, and begins to shine as a morning star preceding him on his track, at a gradually increasing distance, until attaining her greatest westward elongation, and finally completing her cycle by returning to superior conjunction once more in a period of about 584 days. Venus is thus Hesperus or Vesper, the evening star, when following the sun as she passes from beyond him in superior conjunction to inferior conjunction where she is nearest to the earth as she again leaves him behind in her course from this point to the opposite one of superior conjunction, she appears in her second aspect as Phosphorus or Lucifer, the sun of morning, and herald of the day, shining as the fair star that